Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today is Dr. Bobby Donaldson, who is history professor at the University of South Carolina. And on the telephone line is Professor John Hale from the College of Charleston. And today we're going to talk about Emmanuel AME Church in South Carolina, but also a broader view of the role of the church in the life of the African-American community in South Carolina. Of course, we're here today because of the recent tragic events in Charleston, but this gives us a window to open the topic, the role of the African-American church in South Carolina. And Dr. Donaldson, I know this has long been an area that you've been interested in, so let's go back to the 19th century, maybe even earlier, and talk about Christianity and enslaved persons in South Carolina? Well, it, it's, a, it's a long and um, very complex history. Uh, but from the perspective of South Carolina, uh, many of the later developments within the African-American church and co- congregations have deep roots in our state. If you even were to take it as, an, as one example, uh, during the Revolutionary period, uh, among the enslaved uh, population uh, in what is now Aiken County, uh, there was near the Silver Bluff Plantation the development of one of the first and arguably the first uh, independent African-American Baptist church, later called Silver Bluff Baptist, where these were African-Americans who were seeking to create their own space mm-hmm. of worship, uh, of independent uh, worship, and seeking to imagine the world in a very different way, embracing a notion of what we today regard as liberation theology, and seeing the church as integral to their ultimate uh, emancipation. The great sociologist E. Franklin Frazier said, within this space, African Americans create a nation within the nation. So within this segregated space, they created these independent spaces of worship where they developed their own forms of governance, their own notions of entrepreneurship, their own ideas of social justice, which become the bedrock of what is later the uh, civil rights struggle. And Silver Bluff Church still exists. A... A, a, or an, an offshoot. Yes. I, I realize it. Yeah. Co- the congregation. That little. That's a little story too. Because it's a it, complicated story because that church emerges around 1773. Uh, it thrives. There are efforts, just like what we see in other parts of South Carolina. These churches are silenced. Some are closed down. Some through violent means. Some go underground. So the the current Silver Bluff Church traces its roots to the original Silver Bluff Church, with something breaks mm-hmm. uh, in the history because part of that congregation actually crossed the river into Georgia, did Yeah, it? they created what is now the Springfield Church and helped develop the Baptist movement on the uh, eastern side of Georgia. Okay. You mentioned that this is 1773, which is probably news to a lot of folks out there, because most people, in light of the news that has been reported, not just locally but nationally, specifically about Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in in Charleston. They start with about 1812, 1815, and the formation of a Methodist Episcopal Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston. Well, you know, we can go further back. African enslaved people are bringing their own ideas of religion and deity uh, to the colonies. These are the survivals of the Middle Passage. And then it's later sort of shaped and pushed into what is now sort of a Christian ideology. We also know that even before the formation of these visible independent churches, there was what we call the invisible institutions. Uh, African-American congregations were worshiping quietly, often uh, in, the, in the dead of night, um, creating their own spaces. And in addition to what is the invisible church, there's also, before the formation of independent Baptist churches, African mission initiatives among white missionaries and white uh, ministers One of the most notable is the uh, Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, And the gospel and the theology that was being preached during that time period was intentionally designed to to save enslaved people, but at the same time to push forward a gospel and a theology that would conform uh, to the institution of slavery. So the slaves obey thy master is a repeated refrain. a, A lot of New Testament, especially... Paul's right. epistles, right. not so much Genesis and Exodus, certainly right. not Exodus. Right. So it is this slaves obey thy master refrain that is turned on its head to let my people go within the invisible uh, Negro church, as it was called, 
and the later the independent church movement, of which uh, Richard Allen becomes a part of. He's in Philadelphia. And let's talk about the formation of the AME Church and then how it comes to South Carolina. John? Yes. Richard Allen plays a, a crucial role in Philadelphia in 1787 when he pulls away from St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church because of discriminatory practices against African Americans in the church. So in the early Republic period in the city of Philadelphia, African Americans, led by Richard Allen, pull away, establish a free African society, from which later emerges the Bethel AME Church. So you see this idea of African-American autonomy and the practice of religion emerging during this time period, and this will eventually lead to the AME Church in South Carolina. It's one of those dramatic moments uh, that deserves sort of recreating to some degree, because as, as Professor Hale talked about, uh, here is Richard Allen, a very prominent figure within Philadelphia, worshiping uh, in a segregated space at St. George's. Here they are now, Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, and others now seeking to worship and pray uh, on their own terms and are told, you can't do that. You must do so under our rules, uh, under our kind of framework, and within the framework of segregation. And here is this moment where people who have now been studying the very gospel preach to them, saying, uh, this is unacceptable, and we will pray on our own terms, and now we'll pray in our own space. Uh, and it, it, is a, it is a revolutionary moment uh, in the Northeast uh, that sets the stage for an explosive expansion of uh, independent churches within the AME, uh, African Methodist Episcopal, and then later the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Zion denomination. I also think it's important to note the intersection here between religion and politics, because Richard Allen goes on to sue the church uh, through the Pennsylvania courts in 1807 and 1815 for the right to exist independently. So these are also, I, I think you could interpret these as political institutions as well, and they're using the courts very early to establish the right to exist independently and to have their own autonomous space. That leads to an interesting situation in South Carolina where the AME Church is chartered by the General Assembly of South Carolina. Prior to 1820, it was a legally chartered organization and very quickly became the largest congregation in the state, not just for free persons of color who were those who got the charter, but also for enslaved persons in Charleston who began to worship there instead of in the balconies at the Presbyterian Episcopal and the Methodist Episcopal churches. Mm -hmm. So that's the church, of course, that Denmark Vesey is associated with and what Emmanuel AME Church uses as the roots of its congregation. Right. John, let's move on to, with that story, talk about Vesey, because you've already brought up the issue of politics and how that has affected the life of the church. Sure. AME Church is grounded in, as Professor Donaldson talked about, longer traditions of autonomy and independence. The church in Charleston is born in the same tradition, and in 1816, Morris Brown organizes a withdrawal from the Charleston Methodist Episcopal Church over a burial ground dispute. And it is the nature of the church, particularly the AME Church in Charleston, that attracts Denmark V.C., who of course, as we know, purchased his freedom for $600 after winning the lottery, is attracted to the church because of its independence, because of its traditions of resistance to the established order. The AME Church is also attracting a coalition or a unity of enslaved Africans and African Americans, um, some free African-Americans as well. So it is not working with the African-American elite in Charleston. It is working with and practices religion with people who are currently enslaved. And this is exactly the population that Denmark Vesey is attracted to. He trusts them and he wants to work with this congregation in putting forward his plans for an insurrection. And this is really the exception because all of the major denominations in South Carolina have 
sometimes they called them the reading rooms or they had a chapel where a white clergyman or a white layman ran the services for the black members of the congregation. And if you look at the roles of all denominations in South Carolina prior to 1860, especially the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, they are very heavily African-American in terms of their membership. And in many communities, and there are these ordinances passed to where exactly what you just mentioned, that you may worship but under white supervision. Yes, and there was even, in some cases, strong suggestions of what you should preach about and what you shouldn't preach about. Well, I think with Professor Hale's reference to Denmark V.C., I think it explains to some degree why what becomes Mother Emanuel comes under increased scrutiny uh, because everyone is aware that this independent church is emerging, it is growing, the the membership roles are expanding uh, significantly. So there's this question about what is, what is actually being preached, what is actually being discussed, uh, what are they actually um, studying. And I think the Denmark Vesey event slash conspiracy alleged attempt becomes this moment where the where the broader public is looking more closely uh, that these individuals are not embracing the slaves obey thy master scriptures. They are pulling directly uh, from the New Testament. Denmark V.C. himself is reminding people that this is a moment to deliver ourselves out of out of Egypt and to escape from bondage. Uh, his one his one of his most notable quotes that this is the moment where we must determine to right ourselves. And I think that is a, a specific example of why the church uh, is now seen as a real threat to the established order, uh, and to the institution of slavery. And just to build on that as well is the AME Church, as as you noted, comes under increasing scrutiny by city officials in the city of Charleston. And one reason in particular is not just what they're teaching, but is the fact that they're also teaching in the sense where the church is also used as a school. And Mm -hmm. this, you know, going back to the slave codes passed after the Stone of Rebellion, it becomes illegal to teach enslaved and free Africans and African Americans. And the AME Church in Charleston is known as also as a school. So the, the church is actually reprimanded in 1818, 1819, 1820, prior to the uncovered, if you will, insurrection for, for teaching literacy. And this is illegal. It is not welcome in city of Charleston, and they suffer the consequences even before V.C.'s plot is uncovered. Well, these codes are very interesting to me because it almost seems that these are codes made to be broken by both African Americans and white citizens because those laws are constantly being revised as events emerge that prompt their revision or their enforcement. Uh, In 1829, Daniel Alexander Payne, who later becomes a prominent bishop, he's teaching now, as as Professor Hale mentioned, in Charleston. uh, And is drawing increased scrutiny himself uh, as the questions emerge, what's happening uh, in these educational institutions? And the Episcopal Church had operated school in Charleston for African Americans, so did the Roman Catholic Church, and they go through periods of being allowed to do it and not. In fact, here in Columbia, Trinity Episcopal Church had they called it a Sunday school, but it's not the Sunday school the way we think of it today. It's an educational as well, with obviously some theology thrown in. But a very large number of African-American students, and after Vesey in 1822, that part of the Sunday school was shut down. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the, in addition to what's happening within Charleston and the questions about uh, Denmark Vesey and the Emmanuel Church, Everyone in that city is fully aware of broader issues. Uh, so you look back toward the Stono Rebellion. Uh, you look at Gabriel Prosser in Virginia and later, uh, Nat Turner. And many are seeing that these moments of resistance, these so-called uprisings, uh, are being um, shaped and molded by a particular frame of religious thinking. One of the, I think, one of the eye-opening moments in Charleston or around the Deep South and in, in some of the northern communities is when periodicals start emerging, like the Freedom's Journal, and specifically around 1829, David Walker's Appeal, which shows up in Charleston, being circulated. And many think that it is actually being circulated directly within the AME Church and within Emmanuel. And this is a book that is unapologetic about the need for African Americans to embrace a liberation theology and to overthrow, even by violent means, the institution of slavery. 
And of course, by the time that's circulating, the church is underground. Because after Fazy, the church is closed in Charleston and then destroyed, literally destroyed. Yeah, well, I think what, what emerges during uh, the David Walker's appeal is that the church is underground, but when these events happen, citizens, are, white citizens, are beginning to realize that there is something troubling happening underground, even though you thought you had, had, had um, silenced these important institutions. And, you know, looking at Charleston, too, you have to remember that Charleston has, there are twice as many slaves in Charleston than white people. The white community is outnumbered, and the Citadel is also, or what is now the Citadel, is created during this time period, and you begin to see this deep paranoia, which already exists, but it's much deeper after the church is burned and destroyed, and, and you really begin to see why Charleston prepare for what some people feel is an inevitable or what people ultimately fear, which is an uprising of a population that vastly outnumbers them. Well, that fear, of course, I think we can, besides the fact you've got Stono in, in the colonial period, more important about the fear of rebellion goes back to Haiti, because there are Haitian emigres, refugees, who settle in Charleston, black and white. Mm-hmm. And Denmark Vesey and David Walker all are very smart historians, and they know these histories, and they're teaching those histories as they're helping to shape their own revolutionary uh, events. Well, I have seen the phrase so many times in 19th century white literature about, we can't have another Haiti. And those are phrases that certainly appear after emancipation is, we'll have a Haiti in which the white population is, is massacred and killed, and the African Americans will run the state. Right. So let's get back to the congregation. And, and Bobby, you've already mentioned we have a Baptist congregation that's in Aiken, present-day Aiken County, that is throughout from the 1773, throughout, it's still existing now, yes. despite problems. You've got what's now known as Emanuel AME Church underground after 1822. Do you know of other examples around the state? There, I mean, there are. I mean, m- many of these are what I w- we, w- we would see as the invisible institutions, but one, one most prominent that many people sent, tend to overlook is that even Columbia's First Baptist is a majority African-American population, uh, has its own sort of uh, African-American community within the, within the First Baptist Church, and that even by the time of the secession, the African-Americans are asked to give up their seats for a white guest uh, to be a part of that convention. And uh, after the aftermath of um, the burning of Columbia, uh, many of those parishioners then asked to be released from their membership at First Baptist, uh, and the independent Baptist movement in Columbia uh, emerges in 1865, and that is happening all over uh, South Carolina and the South in the aftermath uh, of emancipation. Here in Columbia, I mentioned Trinity St. Luke's is formed by former black members of Trinity who set up their own congregation. Actually, they were pretty much forced out, but they they did establish their own congregation. And those reading rooms and the chapels across the state that had been set up by the white churches became the focal point of these new black congregations. Mm -hmm. So you have black Presbyterians, you have black Methodists, you have black Baptists, uh, black Episcopalians, you have African Methodist Episcopal, African Methodist Episcopal Zion. You also have the CME Church, mm-hmm. which started as a colored Methodist Episcopal Church and then became the Christian, Christian. Methodist right. Episcopal Church. And that actually, that CME Church actually came out of the Southern Methodist Church. Right. So that's a different founding than the AME Church. That's correct. Well, and many, and some of the early um, AME ministers who come into service after the 1865 are actually, many of them are these Methodist Episcopal South preachers who are sought out by the AME Church uh, to develop missions or stations in small communities or emerging urban spaces. With emancipation in 1865, the congregation that becomes Emmanuel purchases the property on what was then Boundary Street, now Calhoun Street, and builds a structure. They actually recreate a building. And in his history of black Charlestonians, Professor Bernie Powers of the College of Charleston points out that in 1865, the pre-Reconstruction white governor of South Carolina, James L. Orr, came to Charleston 
and the leaders of that church said, we need to speak to you. And he went to that church and met with the leaders of the congregation because the question was, now emancipation, what's going to happen, Governor? And so Emmanuel at that point was already taking a leadership role in terms of uh, I don't want to say politics, but questioning the whole community. What's I think, our... I think that the, the, it is politics. Mm-hmm. Um, it, around 1863, uh, James Lynch is an AME missionary, uh, and he is dispatched uh, to South Carolina and Georgia to explore the possibilities of recreating the public face uh, of the AME church. And he consults with Daniel Payne, uh, who is an exile resident of Charleston, and who is now a bishop, um, seeking to develop these new stations. So in 1863, there was this real push. Uh, and if you look closely at the AME uh, periodical, the um, Christian Recorder, you see that their all eyes are set on Charleston. Payne really wants to use Charleston as a, a space to reignite the, the AME church. And uh, in 1865, that they have beginning having a lot of public meetings, uh, and then Mother Emanuel is one of the first churches emerge. It, it later becomes the leading church, but there were smaller churches, some of which did not survive after their first two or three years. And, and that's also, um, it should be noted how, you know, this in many ways is a political event because Bishop Payne's stance is, is a, contradicts that of Reverend Theodore Lewis, who comes down with the Union Army to organize Methodist churches as well and, mm-hmm. and sort of wants a unified Methodist Church, Northern and Southern Methodist. So the AMU Church, the origins of this after the Civil War are not necessarily popular with all Methodists, right? I mean, that's making a statement that they need an autonomous space to practice faith because they can't trust a truly integrated church in Charleston. I think that's exactly right. And uh, to double back to your piece about politics, if you look at the uh, public messages, if you look at the articles and columns that the AME Church is developing and, and publishing, uh, and you look specifically at sermons, there is no doubt that they are championing uh, emancipation and full equality and are beginning to now set the stage about defining what that means in this radically different moment uh, for South Carolina and the nation. When you said the AME Church sent an individual into South Carolina and Georgia in 1863 yes. as a missionary, I think that might boggle the mind of a lot of our our listeners. This black man came from where? Philadelphia. I think I, I believe he did. James Lynch um, comes during that period, and there are others. There are many others. He's probably the chief advocate, and then later Richard Kane himself comes. It shows you, I think, that we, we this window, eighteen fifty five, eighteen sixty three, does invite much more analysis because there are these African American religious groups forming and surviving. Uh, doing what is a daunting moment. And Lynch is is aware of who these people are. And so he's making his circuit around these communities within Augusta, in Macon, Georgia. Right, but but, right, but now how, given the travel restrictions, how is a black man who... Well, I wish I knew that. But and, and the other thing that sort of, that does invite our scrutiny and attention is that in the reason I can sort of sort of speak in general about this, is that the AME Church is publishing the itinerary. And they're publishing also within the Christian Record and other journals the, the real threats and the violent culture that, that, that exists that people like Missionary Lynch are finding. Uh, and, and I think it becomes eye-opening to the northern viewers and readers that you know, this is a troubled land and the AME Church is being dispatched to help in the difficult transition from slavery to freedom. Well, I just, you know, the fact that the itineraries are published, given what I thought was a fairly effective police intelligence network, that these folks live to go from Augusta to Aiken. I think it also invites historians to look at the footnotes, (laughs) because I think that is actually the received wisdom. Um, But seemingly, Mm -hmm. uh, these African Americans are finding ways to navigate around these hurdles. Despite laws, despite policing, um, they are finding their, through ingenious efforts of their own and their sheer will to be free and independent, to spread a new gospel, to develop new institutions, even under the threat of significant violence. But to be fair as well is that, you know, this move, of course, I think is criticized 
widely, you know, in some in some circles in the North because it is seen as antithetical to the spirit of emancipation. Why would you want to establish a separate church in this time of freedom uh, rather than work for the opportunity to unite congregations? And Bishop Hain, for instance, is calling out Reverend Lewis uh, for propagating this notion of a different and dangerous ideology forming of one of separatism, mm-hmm. and he's viewed as autonomy. So, I mean, it's not necessarily an accepted move, and it is controversial at the time period. Well, and of course, as we look post-1865 and the black churches that emerge, yes, there are large black Baptist churches, but they're not part of the Southern Baptist Convention. They're part of the American Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. You've got AME, you've got CME, which leaves the Southern Methodist Church. There are black Episcopalians, although there are a number of them who leave in the 1870s with the Reformed Episcopal Church movement, which actually still is centered in in South Carolina. Well, this idea of an interracial effort to build churches is, is, is interesting because you're right that churches that later become independent black Baptist churches, uh, many of them who emerge in, after 1865 are supported financed through the American Baptist Home Missionary Society. And that, of course, invites all kinds of scrutiny, that here you have African-Americans meeting their own spaces on their own terms, being supported by white Northern missionaries. And surely that will lead to a disturbing of the status quo, and it does. Um, And I think, Walter, what we see is that people now are asking, what does freedom mean? What does it look like? Uh, on what terms do we craft uh, these notions? And within, within the African-American churches, which are essentially community spaces, they're beginning to make certain demands and assumptions about land rights, about voting rights, uh, access to public education. And that is all being debated within these spaces. Okay. I, I think it's also interesting because it's indicative of a black community that is multifaceted in terms of the ideas they're putting forth. So of course, before the Civil War, Charleston has just under 4,000 free African Americans, which helps develop different ideas in terms of how do you approach freedom post-Civil War during emancipation. And there are a lot of ideas out there. And the, the fact that Charleston, African American community, is at times divided between enslaved and free emerges during the Civil War. So you have this very rich discourse emerging, and it's not necessarily clear at the time what's going to emerge. Gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professors Bobby Donaldson and John Hale about the role of the black church in South Carolina from 18th century to the present. Bobby, you mentioned Richard Kane. Why don't you talk a little bit about him? He's a, an important political as well as a religious figure. Well, he is. I mean, Richard Kane comes as part of this missionary movement. And then when Mother Emanuel is established, he's, he's a leading force in that uh, under the guidance of uh, Bishop Payne, uh, and he becomes the first pastor uh, of that church. From almost the very beginning that he is, he is in South Carolina, uh, seen as a competent, skilled negotiator, he invites all kinds of uh, public scrutiny uh, because he's not from these parts. Uh, he's clearly gifted and quite smart, and he's beginning to organize. Um, he is there during the uh, Colored People's Convention in 1865 at the Zion Church, uh, where African Americans are creating a defense against the emerging black codes. Uh, and Kane is a very vocal member of that of that gathering. Okay, and then he goes into politics as well. well he goes into many f- arenas. Uh, he he develops his own uh, newspaper. Uh, he becomes an entrepreneur mm-hmm. uh, in Charleston and becomes a very strong champion of black entrepreneurship throughout his time there, and he's charged with building new congregations. And so Mother Emanuel is Mother Emanuel because so many small stations and congregations uh, emerge between 1865 and 1870 under the direction of uh, Reverend Kane, who becomes a presiding elder of the AME Church. And then he also becomes very active in politics, becomes an elected official, uh, is there in 1868 of helping to shape the Constitution Convention seeking ways to protect African-American voting rights, and specifically advocating for free public education. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, would be part of the Constitution of 1868. Right. And as Professor Hale said, that we, should be, we want to be careful that this was, there was not a 
sort of a unanimous endorsement, even among African Americans, about some of the things we're discussing. And when you look at the Colored Convention and the Constitutional Convention, you see some real debates about what freedom means for whom. Should there be full political rights or should there be restrictions within this, these rights? And so the work of uh, Professor Powers and people uh, like Thomas Holt and Black Over White demonstrates that there is within uh, the African-American community some disagreements about what does freedom mean in that immediate moment uh, after the Civil War. You mentioned, Bobby, that a number of churches were, were formed out of Mother Emanuel, Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. Let's go back into that, that congregation. It's, it's huge. It's a, lar- it's a large congregation. The structure that is built right after the Civil War is destroyed in 1886 by the earthquake, and then they build that magnificent Gothic structure, which is the, the church today. And in fact, preservationists consider the interior one of the best preserved interiors because a lot of the even older churches have been gussied up over the years, whereas they have preserved that interior pretty much as it was built in the late 1880s, early 1890s. I think that's right. And I think it's, you know, it's regrettable that we're having a conversation about the, the powerful and extraordinary history of Emmanuel under these circumstances. Uh, but it, I think it underscores why this church has always been a destination uh, and a symbol. It is a birthplace of so many uh, developments in Charleston and, and throughout South Carolina, and certainly the birthplace of so many congregations who point back to that space uh, as the site of their origins. And, you know, with with uh, Mother Emanuel, too, it's also its location highlights the contradictions of Charleston, that it sits on Calhoun Street. You know, it's hundreds of yards from the now elevated statue of John C. Calhoun, next to Francis Marion, where the Citadel is located, too. So it's in a precarious position in Charleston, which really illustrates, of course, the conflict that led to the tragedy, but also the ongoing tensions that we feel between remembering uh, our history in Charleston and how we move forward from that as well. So the church really, just its just physical location in Charleston, really illustrates some of the deep-seated tensions that continue to frame our discourse today. And I think also the church becomes a symbol of, of black independence and black ingenuity. Reverend Kane in the earlier church was very proud that it was built by, by black hands, indeed designed by Denmark Vesey's son, who's an architect. Mm-hmm. And in the later church that you described that emerges after the earthquake also is regarded as a, a splendid consequence of African-American labor uh, and design uh, as well. And so it becomes this important symbolic space for its architecture, certainly, but also for the so many uh, extraordinary events that occur within that congregation over the last century. The recent tragedy, and I would describe the horror at Emanuel, we don't know what roof, we, we don't know why he allegedly chose that particular church. John, have you got any information well, or, or speculation about that? I mean, we, we can all speculate. My personal reaction when I first learned of, when, when we truly didn't know the extent of the tragedy, but could begin to see it, uh, my first you know impression or thought was that this was targeted specifically for its long history of resistance and its symbolic value to the black community in Charleston. And the manifesto that, that came to light, I think, supports the thesis that Dylan Roof targeted Charleston because of its historic value, but specifically this church as well and its association with resistance in the past and its symbolic value to the African-American in, in Charleston for those reasons. So understanding that, now looking back at the history of the church, helps us understand why it occurred and helps us see this as a horrific act. But it also gives us an opportunity to to understand that the AME Church in Charleston and South Carolina has been attacked before. It's, It's gone through several instances of tragedy and the congregation has always reestablished itself. It's recongregated um, in ways that moved the church forward in, in ways that he, that made it much stronger than it was before. So looking at that church in its longer history, I think provides hope in, in looking at how we can move forward in, in the wake of the tragedy. Well, Walter, I think though, if your, your motivation uh, in, in what has happened is to strike literally at the heart of black people, 
and African-Americans in Charleston and throughout the country, then selecting Mother Emanuel is that place, one of those places. Uh, and I think the, the, the tragedy is deepened by the fact that it occurs in this space among members and ministers of that congregation, uh, including a very notable state senator uh, who served as pastor. I think the, the public conversation is what it is now in part because here is a regrettable and horrific tragedy happening in a space uh, that has meant so much to so many for generations. And really the fact how, you know, the shooter takes advantage of the church in the sense that they keep their doors open. They allow anyone to walk into church. They're so welcoming. And it, it takes advantage of this vulnerable space. I, I, think, I think we have to wait uh, to make further conclusions about what his motivations were. You know, it's, all, it's ironic and tragic as well because Wednesday night, 6 o'clock, uh, was Bible study meeting at Mother Emanuel. They were, they were late in having that Bible study that night. Um, does he know that? Not sure. Um, usually those meetings are over before the time in which um, Ruth shows up. Um, they had already had an earlier meeting where there were 50-plus people uh, in attendance. So the, this timing would have meant that if he had arrived at the scheduled hour, uh, we would be talking about even even, even greater tragedy. And it's also a matter of speculation. And, and I agree that we have to wait to truly understand the motivation. We, I mean, we can point to race and racism as obvious causes of this, right? But as far as the specific motivations of the church, we can wait to see. But I, I also think it's a matter of speculation that uh, the date of the tragedy in June was also coincides with the anniversary of the revised plan of, of VC's insurrection which he had to move once you know people began to inquire into what he was talking about. So it also coincides with that date as well. There's just a lot of factors that make it a very horrific event because of how it targets this, this history. Yeah, and I think the confluence of circumstances, as we understand it, uh, pushes us to have the kind of conversation we're having today, uh, and that it does invite us to look very closely at Mother Emanuel's history, the history of congregations throughout South Carolina and elsewhere uh, who have witnessed these uh, troubling and violent acts, uh, certainly not on this scale, um, but and we now are looking more closely at the history of this church uh, in ways that I've never seen before in all of its complexity as this center of, of social political uh, development. Well, gentlemen, let's get back specifically to the history of this church and the movements that came out of it in terms of civil rights, support for the hospital workers uh, in Charleston. It has been a center of community activism literally coming out of that facility from the 1890s on. Yeah, the AME Church is one of several churches in Charleston, not the only church, which provides a safe meeting place for what we call mass meetings, where people would congregate and gather at night to gain strength, to you know reconnect with a sense of community before going on to the front lines, if you will, of the civil rights movement. So after boycotts on King Street, you could you could gather at AME Church and and sing and and, and to listen to others speak about the importance of committing yourself to the civil rights movement. But even well before the direct action campaigns in the 1960s, AME Church develops the reputation of, of hosting speakers that speak to this issue. So Booker T. Washington speaks in 1909. Of course, Dr. King speaks in 1962 during the hospital workers' strike, as you mentioned. Coretta Scott King speaks here as well. So it emerges as one of these safe spaces to meet during the civil rights movement, which only builds upon its long history of resistance and a space of autonomous political thought, and more importantly, action. And I agree. I mean, Mother Emanuel uh, was one among many churches in Charleston that becomes these public venues for political organizing uh, and social activism. From the early part of the 20th century, it becomes a site and a destination, in part because the AME Church is committed to this idea of liberation theology and social justice, but it's also the largest space where people can gather. So in 1909, when Booker Washington comes championing industrial education uh, with the famous Baptist preacher Richard Carroll, they go to Mother Emanuel. 
uh, soon after the chartering of the NAACP in Charleston by Edwin Harleston, uh, a former student of W.E.B. Du Bois. Mother Emanuel becomes a frequent meeting space. During the um, 1920s, the great NAACP leader W.E.B. Du Bois uh, hosts a mass meeting uh, at Mother Emanuel. And on, on throughout the decades, it becomes that space. Several of the, uh, the pastors of Mother Emanuel become prominent NAACP leaders within Charleston uh, and uh, throughout South Carolina. And as Professor Hell mentioned, uh, during the, the moments of the early 1960s, as you have mass demonstrations and mass meetings, uh, Mother Emanuel becomes one of the spaces in Charleston uh, where these events occur. John also mentioned that uh, the AME Church in general, very active in the civil rights movement, of course, here in Columbia, uh, Bobby, uh, Bethel AME Church, mm-hmm. or Big Bethel, as some people called it, the, the old downtown church was a major focal point for the civil rights movement in the city. Well, it, there, there are several churches like Mother Emanuel around South Carolina. Bethel AME in Columbia called Bethel Station in 1866 was created by members of Mother Emanuel uh, who came to, to Columbia to develop that congregation. And so I, th- this is why I think the, the church's role and influence is all over the state because these congregations trace their roots in the, 18, mid-18, the late 1860s to Mother Emanuel. And I also think it's important to note, you know, putting the AME Church, and specifically Mother Emanuel, in a larger context, you see that it, it was more it was more common not to provide a meeting space for the civil rights movement because churches, of course, were commonly burned in the, specifically in the 1960s. So the fact that AME has such a long history of resistance and providing a meeting space is truly significant. You see more and more churches open their doors to the movement as the 1960s progressed. But the fact that it has been such a long-standing institution and very visible, providing visible support of the civil rights movement is truly significant and really places Emmanuel AME at uh, a sort of a different level compared to other churches yeah. uh, in the history of Charleston, South Carolina and the American South. I I believe, I agree, the the social mission and social justice uh, component uh, is a part of the the foundation of the AME Church from its very beginnings. And in South Carolina, I've heard NAACP leaders say that without the AME Church, much of that was achieved in our state would not have been possible. Uh, Between 1953 and 1965, the pastor of Mother Emanuel was uh, Dr. Benjamin J. Glover, who becomes um, a, a very vocal and, and strong member of the NAACP within Charleston and in Columbia and throughout the state, uh, he is able to do what he does as his passionate advocate in part because he has the blessings of the bishop of the AB Church, who is Frank Madison Reed, uh, who charges every minister to support the civil rights struggle from the 1940s up through the mid-60s. And that would not have been possible in many other denominations unless the leading voices endorsed it. And so Frank Madison Reed was unusual among some AME bishops uh, for his fervent commitment to social justice and unapologetically. Um, and that goes to the support of um, Allen University when there are threats to dismiss white professors who are alleged communist. That goes to his support uh, financially and otherwise for the Clarendon Movement. And Reverend J. Delane, another very prominent AME minister, uh, who follows the, that the church's um, sort of doctrine of social gospel. And just building on that, it, it just further illustrates that inextricable link between politics and religion in, in many ways uh, in the South, because when you look at how white politicians typically emerge to office, it's through law school or it's through business. And when those avenues are closed to the African-American community, the church becomes the institution in which political leaders can emerge. So you need that religious support or the, or the support of an institution like AME to become a political leader in the South. And when you look at Reverend Pinckney's history, and he comes from a history of politicians associated with the church, mm-hmm. uh, a long history. You know, his great-grandfather, Reverend Lorenzo Stevenson of Marion, brought a lawsuit against the Democratic Party to end white-only primaries. His uncle, also becomes involved. His his uncle, Reverend Laverne Stevenson, works with the NAACP to desegregate schools, and eventually sues Governor John West. So you see this that this really deep connection mm-hmm. between 
the church is the words movement in, in explicitly political form. There are so many figures that we could cite who are, who are AME members. John Henry McRae, a very strong member of the AME church, a person who really deserves much greater attention. I know Professor Hale and others are focusing on him, but John Wrighton, one of the unsung civil rights attorneys who sues the University of South Carolina for admission to law school, but who was a member of Mother Emanuel um, when he seeks admission into the College of Charleston uh, in the 1940s. And you, you mentioned McRae, but remind folks that he challenged the Democratic Party, created Freedom Democratic Party. Well, I, well it seems like the, the— I'm sorry, was it right? Was Freedom Democratic— the Progressive Democratic Party. I'm just kidding. He founded the Progressive Democratic Party and actually tried to get a delegation yes. seated at the Democratic National Convention in the 1940s. Well, and it seems like what Professor Hill mentions is that Reverend Pinckney's grandfather is a part of that group mm-hmm. that is seeking um, the right to vote uh, in the Democratic Party in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, let's kind of summarize what we've been talking about, specifically Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, but also the church in general throughout South Carolina history, certainly from the 18th century to the present. And John Hale, I'll call on you first. Sure. I think this conversation, which, I, which I'm honored to be a part of, is, is so important in moving forward from this tragedy. Um, in addition to calling for unity, it's important to look at this history. And a lot of the media is, you know, they're pointing out this is a historic church, mostly because in their mind it's an old church. But in recognizing this long history of resistance and recognizing this history of civil rights activity and civil rights leaders emerging from the AME Church is very important to recognize because it helps us understand why this tragedy occurred at the AME Church, but it also helps us move forward in understanding the potential for this institution to continue to grow and to continue to serve as a moral compass for a Charleston that is right now united, but looking at its long history of Charleston, it's a very divided community. So we can look at this history and understand the church as an institution that will be absolutely crucial in moving forward and addressing many of the social, political, and economic issues that still plague Charleston today. Bobby? Well, I, I think this is a moment that the church really sort of magnifies so many issues as we think about what occurred in the tragedy, uh, where we are in South Carolina, you know, in, in the midsummer of 1963, Mother Emanuel is a is a is a is a space where African American civil rights leaders, specifically young people, are are continuing the fight against uh, discrimination uh, and segregation in, in public spaces. That same year, uh, the pastor of the church is Reverend B. J. Glover, uh, and he receives a threatening letter uh, that I have seen a copy of that says that if he does not stop his activities, that his life will be threatened. It's sent by an anonymous onlooker. But it says, the first line is, you people now have too much freedom. And this is July of 1963. During that very same time period, there, of course, is the battle about the flag itself. Uh, In April of 1961, the famous centennial meeting uh, in Charleston, uh, there is a meeting at the Francis Marion Hotel under rules of segregation, prompted by the New Jersey delegation. Uh, The NACP now sort of inserts itself into uh, the debate about that event. And ironically, uh, during April, on April 11th, 1961, there are two events. There's one at Francis Marion. Well, there are three. Uh, one at Francis Marion, one at, at, at the Naval Yard. But there's another meeting at Mother Emanuel, attended by Roy Wilkins, John Hope Franklin, Benjamin Quarles, and others. Uh, and one of the lines of one of the black newspapers is that we're glad the South did not win. And it just shows you at that very moment, the church becomes yet a space where we see two different angles of the history of South Carolina. Yes, and the fact that members of the National Civil War Centennial Committee were not allowed in the hotel became a cause to live nationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, the whole centennial celebration, again, I don't like that word, but that's what they did call it, kind of fizzled. Well, and it's interesting because that moment, April 11, 61, is where there are continued mass demonstrations in uh, Charleston, in Columbia, Dr. Glover is arrested on the grounds of the State House only a few weeks before uh, this event occurs. That leads to a very famous uh, civil rights case. But I, it, and Dr. King then comes that next year in '62. You know, in one of his last uh, publications, Dr. King publishes this article, this book entitled "Where Do We Go From Here: uh, Community or Chaos?" Uh, and these tragic circumstances about Mother Emanuel, 
about the complicated history, about the multiple interpretations of that history, invites us back to that very question. Uh, where do we go from here? And I think it's very important as we map out the future that we provide an honest and in-depth history of our state and of our community. Well, Professor Donaldson, that was well said and beautifully said. And I would like to thank Professor John Hale from the College of Charleston and Professor Bobby Donaldson from the University of South Carolina for being with us today on Walter Edgar's Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and normally I close by saying I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I don't think that's appropriate for this topic. I hope you learned something from today's journal. I know that I did. The recent events in Charleston quite literally have begun to change South Carolina history. We don't know how it's all gonna play out, but we do know that the background, the roots, for example, of Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, the role that that church has played for more than 200 years is gonna make a difference. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.